Arteta! What a Remember that time you said you would be happy if Arsenal lost the Europa League final, but Spurs lost the Champions League final? Well, we're halfway there. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. That's right. We're halfway to the scenario that many people said they preferred. Would you rather Arsenal win the Europa League and Spurs win the Champions League or Arsenal lose the Europa League and Spurs lose the Champions League? Well, if you chose the latter, you are 50% of the way there. And I just want to say congrats to you. Uh, I think I was probably on the fence there, but... You know, no criticism. I think if that was the, the scenario you preferred, I know Tim did, then that's great. And I think I, I just I just want to say congrats because it's a happy day. You're halfway to that scenario. For the rest of us, maybe not such a good day. I kid. Miserable, miserable day. And we're going to try to get through it together as a catharsis. Already listened to the Arscast, which was excellent. Um, I think it just helps to pull together in times like this. So we're going to do some complaining. We're going to say some things that maybe in the cold light of day a few months from now we'll regret, but I think that's fine. There's a time for that when you're experiencing these kinds of emotions and here to experience them with me, uh, with you, with all of us is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause in My Pants. Hello, Paul. Woohoo! And Clive, you can find him on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. And somewhere in his journey back, returning from Baku, is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto and in the real world, I think, in Turkey. Hello, Tim. Hello there. You are in Turkey, is that right? Uh, I am, yes. Yeah, let's do this, Tim. Let, let's get the travelogue out of the way. You've been, if people have missed it on mm. our blog, you've been writing up your travelogue, and it's excellent, and everybody should have a look at it. Before we get into the emotions we're feeling, where it leaves us as a club, what went wrong in the day, and all of those things, I just was wondering if you could encapsulate for us briefly the experience in the ground, how it's differed from other big games or finals you've been to, and, mm. and overall your thoughts on this being the, the place where the Europa League final happened in Baku. Yeah, so so this is the future, um, and it's rubbish, I'm afraid. I, I don't have an awful lot good to say um, about the final as an experience, like even on the match day and the build-up. I, I really, and I think you'll probably see this if you if you read like the entries back of the travel log I did. I honestly went into this with an open mind, and I, I don't need to rehash why this was, um, you know, an especially obstructive place to play it. I very much believe that, you know, these finals should be shared around and blah, blah, blah. And that, you know, that London isn't the center of the universe. But but to pretend that Baku isn't like an extra layer of inconvenience and cost is just stupid. Um, and UEFA's kind of grandstanding around it. It's really, 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 really take um, exception to the tone of their kind of statements where, you know, somehow if you think it's a bit silly playing it, playing it in Baku that you're some kind of like, xenophobe who just wants it at Wembley and and that's absolutely not the case um but yeah it was uh, it was to be honest after a couple of days I'd had my fill of Baku but that's fine like I you know I don't expect every city I go to to be some like thriving um metropolis and I understand that it's like it's quite a new city and it's developing and 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 everything like that but um yeah once it got to the day before the game all the price gouging started and you know, taxi drivers started being stupid and, you know, it, it, it soon became apparent that, you know, you were being kind of grabbed by your ankles and turned upside down so that all the money comes out of your pockets. And uh, For what it's worth, my four-year-old thinks that's yeah. hilarious when I do it to her. So, you know, maybe that's the issue. <laughs> um, 
And honestly, like going to the stadium was, you know, they, they had all these like helpers around who were just absolutely useless, like didn't know anything. You get to the stadium and what was immediately obvious, as if this whole thing wasn't obvious, was that this was an experience, and I use the word advisedly, that was 100% designed for neutrals. This was about, you know, growing the game, which is UEFA's code for, you know, being a bit colonial and trying to get the big teams into into other territories um, so they can kind of keep spreading their wares and, you know, tap into new revenue streams. But, you know, you, you got to the, the metro station. It's, it's not an easy stadium to get to. It's in the middle of the motorway. Um, you get to it from a metro uh, entrance and it's it, it's... It's a bit of an odyssey. It's a bit of a maze getting there. Um, there was absolutely no consideration for the Arsenal or Chelsea fans. There were no, there was no signage to the Arsenal and Chelsea ends. It was all about the neutral sections. All of the people who were there supposed to be giving out information had no idea about where the Arsenal and Chelsea fans actually were. Obviously, we were given the worst seats in the corners of the stadium furthest away from the metro uh, furthest the furthest access access points away in an already inaccessible stadium and inside it was about three quarters full and i i describe it as a semi-engaged audience basically and people filming bits on their camera phone and looking up at the game occasionally uh, and then the two sets of supporters kind of hived away in the corners of the ground and, and actually um, the, the, the first time this felt like a big final and not a pre-season tour was uh, when we got to the concourse and, you know, all of the Arsenal fans were finally together. And, you know, there's just this sense that we've we've all gone through a bit of a journey uh, financially, emotionally, geographically to get here. Um, and there was a really good kind of 30-minute um you know, like everyone coming together in the concourse and singing and, and you really got this, this sense of defiance, this, you know, well done us, we, we fucking managed this. And, you know, UEFA expressly do not want us here. Um, they've tried basically to stop us from coming and we're the ones who, don't get me wrong, we're exceptionally privileged because we could all afford it and we could all um, take the time out of work. But there, there was a kind of, this was difficult and now we're going to have our moment here. Um, and there was, there was a real kind of sense of defiance and solidarity. And I was talking to Chelsea fans, you know, during the day and it was quite nice actually, because, you know, it might become apparent to some people. I don't have a lot of time for Chelsea or a lot of Chelsea fans, but there was this real kind of sense of solidarity, this real like conversation. And how did you get here? And like, well fucking done to you for getting here. And, and everything like that. And there, and there was like an odd sense of solid solidarity. So where this game was really entirely designed for the neutrals, um, the whole experience was designed for the neutrals. And we came out the stadium afterwards and they'd laid on some buses. Um, and we tried to ascertain where the buses were actually going and nobody knew. And so we were like, right, what do we do? They were just like, just get on the bus. And we we're like, right, where do they go? Don't know. Thank you. That's that's really, really not helpful. And, you know, just not a single second's thought was spared um, for the fans of the two clubs. And and, and it showed inside the stadium. Um, unfortunately, it felt like um, it felt like a legends game or an exhibition match. It was it uh, other than that kind of 30 minutes in the concourse when we were all showering each other with beer and having a bit of a sing song. It never at any point felt like a final. There wasn't that kind of you know, congregation in city centres and stuff like mm. that. It was it was a 
fairly isolating um, experience. And I, and unfortunately this, you know, this is just um, a glimpse into the future and it's, it's not um, a future I'm, I'm really interested in um, to be honest. It was, it was disengaging, disenfranchising and deliberately, I think designed to isolate the more partisan elements of the support. Well, the good news, Tim is, we may never have to attend a European final again, the way things are going. Look, it, it sounds like a horrible trip and a horrible experience, but at least once it kicked off, the football made it all worthwhile. So there you go. Uh, yeah. um, I'm sorry you had to live through that. Um, you know, I can admit that it was painful to watch on TV, but to make that trip for the football you were served up has to feel uh, like a betrayal of sorts, even though it obviously wasn't mm. done to you. Clive, you yeah. and I did... Uh, I thought a, a nice little conversation together pre, pre-match uh, for a podcast kind of covering our expectations, our concerns. I think both of us said we're that we were... hopeful, weren't we? I, well, you know, the, you know, a fool in his hope, and there's probably some kind of saying there, I just don't know it. Um, it's the hope that kills. That's the one that, that we know, uh, and, and proved true again. But one of the things we did is we, we broke down, I think, the tactics slash formation that we maybe like to see and then the one that we expected to see. And we both really emphasized that a four diamond two, like we used in the home game, would be nice to see, but that we expected it probably would be the back three just as it was. I don't think there were any surprises with the lineup. But one of the concerns that we addressed on the last podcast, very specifically and clearly, was that the departments get disconnected, that the Shaka Torreira midfield doesn't connect up to the forwards enough, that Ozil is either dropping too deep to, to collect or is too distanced from the midfielders. And as as a result, we have trouble building back to front and sustaining possession in our attacks that everything would have to flow out to those wide players. I thought that really played out. Now, I've seen people describe our first half as largely good. I thought the first half was mostly turgid, period. I thought both teams struggled to wake up and that Chelsea finished the half more dominantly. We did have some opportunities. To me, it looked like Chelsea were intentionally staying very compact at the back and giving us those wide areas and packing you know, the defense into the box saying, we don't trust these wingbacks to, to provide the service that can hurt us. And they were, they were right. They rode their luck a bit, but they were right. So for you, how much of what we anticipated came to fruition and how much of the pattern of play do you think really played into Chelsea's uh, game plan? Well, the first thing I noticed was Obviously, on, on the lead up to the game, I don't know about you guys, but I was incredibly nervous about this game. Incredibly nervous. I, I built up in my mind massively. I know there's so much riding on it for how we build going forward. And I was, I don't think I've ever been this nervous for a game before. Right. And that's the truth. And I should know better at my age. Right. So, and the game started. And the first thing I noticed was, the lack of quality in the first five to ten minutes from both teams. I thought it was really, really poor. I thought we basically, everyone's giving the ball away. And I just felt we looked nervous. We looked really nervous. And it's, we it got a bit better and we got into wide areas. I totally agree with you around Chelsea managed the box, which suited their, suited Aspilicueta not to drag him out. But actually, they weren't that great. Their goalkeeper was desperately trying to throw one in. <laughs> he was. I mean, and, and they were just getting away with it. So let's not, I don't want anyone to sit there and think, oh my God, it was a tactical masterclass by them, because I don't think it was. But what they did do is they showed something. They showed they watched the semi final games against Valencia. They showed that because they absolutely disconnected us from our front two and they made it really something that they made the rest of the team beat them. And without our front two, I think they scored all seven goals in the semi-final. Without them having the space 
their confidence waned. I felt their ability to impact waned. And then you're now saying to the rest of the team, you have to beat us. So then we start to look around. So we look around at Colosini. You're not going to beat us because you don't know what you're doing when you get to the box. <laughs> you know where to go first times, second time, you know where to shoot. So we're not, we're not sure we can get from you. I'll tell you what we always get from you. We get a little hand wave to say sorry. That's what you've been doing for the last two months. Saying sorry when you whiff, when you whiff on into the seats, right? So that's him done. Maitland Niles, he's had some bright moments. He did quite well in the first half, but if we're relying on him, that's a problem. Um, then we have our two set of midfielders who have a specific job to control a bigger space than they normally want to, because our third midfielder is a complete enigma. And what they really said was to Mesut Ozil, we want you to beat us. Let's see what you can do. You don't shoot. You don't pass dangerously anymore. You don't play at a pace. You can't run away from us. So we're going to make you beat us. And I thought that was a, a really smart tactic. And then you start to look at our shape and say, okay, we have a problem now because they're killing our golden boys. And I don't know what we're going to do to get to, to take this first goal. And, um, and so you got to half time and I just felt quite dead at half time. I didn't feel encouraged. I didn't feel like we, we've got them. I just thought, mm, this doesn't feel quite right. I can't see how we're going to do this. We're waiting for a mistake from them or a bit of brilliance from us. And I'm like reaching into the bottom of my emotion to think what's going to happen now. And <laughs> what happened was Olivier Giroud and a, a moment of brilliance from them. we are one down and bingo, air comes out the bag. 95% of Arsenal fans were thinking we're done. We're done here. <laughs> and, they, and they were right for the, for the record because we had no response after that. I mean, the way we went to pieces after going down, I thought was pretty shambolic. The, the thing is, you know, if you want to describe the the first half as as a better performance, I mean, okay, it was better than the second half, but in the first hour of the match, we had four shots. You know, we we finished the game with sixteen shots, and you can look at that and say, oh well, you know, we attacked. We we had four shots in the first hour, and the game was decided at that point. And I, I just felt that, to your point, Clive, we emphasized the area of the pitch that we have all season, those wide spaces. Maitland Niles played with personality, I thought. But yeah. he, he didn't have the final ball. You know what his crosses remind me of? They remind me a little of Iwobi's shots. Now, not the one he scored spectacularly this game, but he had a lot of crossed efforts where he just didn't make the right contact. Kolasinac had the chance in the 15th minute to first time across into the box and had two targets to pick out. That That's was perfect. a huge, huge moment in the game. And, you know, people, some people have said to me on Twitter, ah, that's a hard technique, or it's not as easy as it looks. None of this is easy, as easy as it looks. But at that level, you want to win a European trophy, you first time that into the middle of the box, and someone taps it home. So, yeah, I thought that was disappointing. You know, Paul, the interesting thing is that the big shock of the day was not our lineup. It was, of course, they were playing possum, and Conte starts, right? And it's funny in a way because I can see why Conte's had such a weird season for Chelsea and why they're sort of perplexed with Sarri and he's struggled with him. Conte played a lot more advanced than I expected him to. The way I felt that a lot of this first half went is that Chelsea struggled to, to get on the ball. We struggled to get on the ball. There wasn't a lot of quality, but you could clearly see that once they got by our midfield and Hazard had the ball or they had the ball in our final third, that we looked a lot less assured defending. Um did you sort of see the cracks in the arm reforming uh, earlier in the game? I think, uh, like, if you take the first half, 
I agree. The fr- it started messy. Then we kind of had a middle section where we were starting to look fairly lively. We were having chances to have chances. Like the like Kolasinac had a few opportunities where he could have done something with it. Um, and so you were kind of feeling middle in that, uh, pretty decent in that middle 15 minutes. And then the, as the half wound down, uh, the tension levels began to rise. And I think there was a collective sigh when half time came. And then they came out after halftime and they went up a level from where they'd ended. So they kind of, there were a couple of notches above us by the time they got going in the second half in terms of their performance. Um, it, the, in terms of, of the lineup, I, I think the other, you wouldn't say surprise, but major choice for them was going with Giroud, um, which drastically impacted how they changed and, and was a big determinant of the overall game, his relationship with Hazard. And the combinations they play played, and Pedro as well, who can look bang average uh, during the season, but not when we play them. Apparently, um, I do wonder if part of the issue with the first half on both sides was that there was this funky atmosphere in the stadium. I mean, we've done well in big matches. This was a big match, but it had a weird kind of atmosphere to it, and. Uh, I think one of the things we could have really done with and this team could have really done with to, to get beyond the fragility and its its own question marks about its its abilities uh, uh, at the upper levels of the game was a big attitude, a big atmosphere to infect our attitude, which we never got. You should be able to generate generate, generate that yourselves, but more of a Wembley or a, a Derby attitude would have really kind of, I think, helped us be much more competitive in the game yeah. uh, when when the going got tough and we sh- you should be able to generate that yourself um, they came out at the start of the second half just they took it up another level and they were already beginning to create a gap and we were slow to adapt but I really think this was a game of big moments by big players and Pedro Giroud and Hazard certainly Giroud and Hazard can be regarded as big players, Hazard was brilliant. I mean, you, if you want to look for a ray of sunlight in all this, Hazard is hopefully off to Real Madrid. Oh, I think it's pretty gonna, clear from his comments after the match that he's gone. Yeah, and that's yeah, they get the money from that, but that's a big hole. Well, they have to a fill. transfer ban too, so <laughs> who knows if they can even use the money? Yeah, so so that's kind of interesting. Um, uh, beyond that, I mean, uh, I know there's a lot of of questioning of our players. And Tim made a great point about the physicality of our team. Uh, and I think that's right. We don't have that as athleticism that you need at this upper level. And yet when you go around most of these players on the field, um, you, you can pick two or three. You could maybe look at Monreal, Afedin, Koscielny, uh, and Ozil. But everybody else was is a, a pretty, pretty significant athlete on that pitch. Um, and yet, I think the overall Paul point is right. We haven't been this uh, tough team, this mentally tough team, and this physically athletic team for some time. And it's just part of the overall enigma. We kind of fell away in a key phase of the game, but we had chances. Our big, big pl- chances to have chances, and they didn't do that much with them. And that covers Lacazette, Aubameyang, and you know, my heart bleeds for us and for Ozil. 
at what it's come to because he certainly to me to my eye was putting in a shift and doing everything he could think of and yet when you compare him to Hazard yeah uh, as as the big price tag players who were there to make a difference I mean you just you want to cry for us and to some degree for him well, look, I mean, I think Ozil put in a 5 out of 10 performance, and I don't think he's alone in that. I think the focus on him is exactly what you're saying, Paul, which is that Ozil is being compared to Hazard on the other side. You know, the two sort of playmaking, attacking players who are supposed to be the the fuel, the um, starter fluid, so to speak, for the attack, and the performance Hazard put in, which totally changed the game and won it for Chelsea, and the one that Ozil put in that was fairly anonymous. Um, Paul, before I move on to Tim, just one quick question, and it's super, super quick. For you, is that a penalty on Lacazette? Uh, no, but it, it, it tells me how games can change. I mean, I think their penalty probably was, but it's kind of, in terms of the overall game, it's kind of unlucky. It's an inexperienced player being a bit clumsy. If you pick the right angle on that one, you might have serious doubts, and I think the same is true, but the other side of it with, with uh, Lacazette, I don't think it was a penalty. But, you know, the goalkeeper wasn't under control, so anything could have happened mm. and gone our way. So big moments and big games and big performances from big players. And this, you know, when we, you we think didn't of get the, either. <laughs> we didn't get either. And when you think when we beat them in the FA Cup final, we're like, well, why didn't we do that? You think about the big moment in that one with uh, your old mate Alexis in the first few minutes. You know, that's an offside. But and a, a handball. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also a, a big player with a big moment putting us ahead. So, you know, here we are. We go basically go down 3-0 uh, and then quickly cough back the goal. We get back to 4-1. But at 3-0, the game's dead. Uh, I, I still think this, this feels a much worse performance than it actually was. But it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I think Alexis is an interesting shout because if you look at the difference between Ozil and Alexis, do I think that Alexis is a better player than Ozil or has been? I don't I don't know that I believe that. Do I think Alexis is the kind of attitude you want from a star player in a final and Ozil is not? Yeah, I absolutely believe that. And I think, I don't think it's a penalty on Lacazette. I mean, here's what I would say. There is contact. If you are in the school of contact as a penalty, it's a penalty. The bigger contact is actually Kepa's head on Lacazette, not the... Not the arm, but the head. But I don't quite think it's a penalty. Tim, I won't saddle you with that question because I know uh, you find it boring <laughs> and tedious. Look, when Cola gets played in with the chance to make that first-time cross that he doesn't, you know, I, I think it, it was the first time in the game that I really felt we had a chance to score a goal, but it was also the first time in the game that I realized that's by design. They were giving up the wide spaces completely. Mm. And, and I felt that... You know, I don't know if that was a rope-a-dope move. I don't know if they didn't think the wingbacks could hurt us. But as the game wore on, they then started to put a player in the space vacated by our wingbacks. And that's when we collapsed. I mean, how do you feel about the way we used the wings and the way Chelsea responded? Do you think we fell into their trap or something different happened? Uh, yeah, I think so a little bit. Yeah, they, they obviously thought, well, Arsenal are quite good at playing in their fullbacks, but it, it's a really, really hit and miss kind of tactic because, because essentially, I know, I know it's cutbacks, but essentially, like mathematically speaking, it's like pumping in loads of crosses. Um, it's just, you know, we don't have Olivier Giroud up front anymore. So there's no point in putting them at head height. They just, they go in along the floor. Um, but I, I don't really see much of a differentiation in terms of 
um, the likely success of that tactic. And I, I do think Chelsea just thought, OK, um, try your cutbacks and we'll just crowd the box out. We know there's no Ramsey in the team. We know there's no one running in. We know Ozil's not going to do that. Um, so we'll just mark the two strikers. And that that's effectively, I think, what they did. Um, and yeah, and, and I think Chelsea, you know, they, they, it's, it seems to me they really watched well. Um, I think Clive's right what we did in the semi final when you look at like Maitland Niles kind of coming out, pulling an assist out, um, and, you know, getting those goals in the kind of half spaces and wide areas. Um, and that they just didn't really allow us to do that. They, they just kind of, they defended the width of the 18 yard area and they just kind of said, look, we don't mind that much if you play Kalasinach and Maitland Niles in because then they've got to find someone and we're going to make that um, we're going to make that really difficult. We're going to make it a needle in a haystack. Yeah, and there's only two people because um, you don't have that other yeah. extra body running into the box. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we really, really, really miss that without Ramsey. We don't have enough players that do that that gamble on that. We, you know, our our team effectively, other than the two strikers, is like. If, I bet if you looked at our kind of heat maps from most of the games this season or average positions, um, they just look like a straightforward formation graphic that there's not much fluidity there. Um, and, and that's, that's ultimately what happened, I think. I think it was just, we were, we were a little bit predictable. Chelsea knew what was coming, um, and they dealt with it. I, I mean, Paul's right. Like, um, until they scored the first goal, it's not like, I wouldn't say, you know, Chelsea looked brilliant or insanely comfortable. It was a really even game. Um, you know, in terms of both teams being probably slightly below par, but it was it was completely even until that first goal went in. But you know, Arsenal have obviously have a psychological problem when they go one nil down. But I, I do think it's more the physical thing. I just think when the tempo or the temperature of a game rises, they don't have a response. And basically, what you saw yesterday was that Arsenal can play chess, but they can't. They can't play track, you know. Mm-hmm. So when it's a chess match, they they're kind of all right with that. Um, and and look, ultimately, I think you know, I, I tweeted kind of after the game that I personally I I understand all the reasons it's not going to happen, but personally, I'd end it with Emery. Now I just I just don't have a look. I don't really oh, see anything. Oh, we'll come to that. <laughs> <laughs> I assure you, and, that's on and, the agenda. <laughs> and you know, so basically, a team shows you what they actually believe in, in adversity. They show you who they are in those moments. And, and for me, basically, when Arsenal go 1-0 down, they don't, like, there just doesn't seem to be... But I get that, you know, Emery wants us to be like the chameleon team and all of that, but unfortunately, that's not built on anything. It's like, there isn't a platform, it's just tweaks. That's all it is. And what you need, I think, is a platform, and then you tweak on top of that. But actually... All we seem to have is tweaking and it's, it's all a little bit built on sand. And um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I don't I don't think it was necessarily an absolute tactical masterclass from Chelsea. I think we could have just as easily gone 1-0 up from a bit of a hit and hope cross or cutback that, that went in a bit like they did. And, and the game probably would have been very different. But um, yeah, I, I just think effectively we're, we're quite predictable and particularly with some of the players we were missing, um, namely Aaron Ramsey. It, yeah. it just makes us too easy to defend against. I can't think of, and Clive, maybe you can, I can't think of a back three performance in against any Premier League team 
I'm going to say this season, but I'll probably forget one. I can't think of a back three performance where we looked good going forward and we looked really threatening and cohesive at any point against any Premier League team this season that didn't include Aaron Ramsey in the team. There may be one. But for me, this formation relies on the verticality he delivers because Shaka sits, Ramsey goes, Ozil's in front, and now you have that vertical line and you have layers to your attack and then as the ball gets into the final third Ramsey can run beyond and there's three in the box Chelsea made it so it was always four on two in their box and they handled it very comfortably and some of that is Ozil's issue too because he doesn't really want to get in there and he wasn't getting in there but like when you have Torreira and Chaka and look at their heat map to, to Tim's point look at the the touch map the average position map they are on plane horizontal just at the halfway line that's where they spend their time and then there isn't that extra verticality, that that connection between the two. So for you, without Ramsey, do you see performances that lead you to believe? And again, I'm talking about in the Premier League because we're facing a Premier League team here. I know what we did in the Europa League, and a lot of that was just on the the absolute brilliance of our strikers. But can this formation work when you have those two central midfielders that want to stay on plane with each other? I mean, have you seen anything to indicate that this was going to be more effective? You, you can tweak it. You can have... Shaka, you can create a triangle there with Shaka at the base of that triangle. And rather than players or as a two, one behind two, you just have two ahead of one and you create a bit more, a bit more, a bit more depth in there. I, I think it's a, it's something that we do as Arsenal fans. I mean, I was thinking, crikey, I, I wouldn't mind Mustafi on this pitch. We tend to look at players when they're not there and then we think about their best moments. Um, I, I think Amram just some great moments against Chelsea, but he's, he had one in high up, he had one in a deeper position when, when Shaka was behind and everything else was in front. And we pressed up higher from a midfield position and we blocked the midfield that way. High risk, back three was a bit younger and fresher. I think Tim's point about platform is the key point. Our platform is not there. It's, it's not a managerial issue. It's a player issue. Our best defender suddenly looks like he's done in Koscielny. He just looks aged. Monreal, classic Arsenal. Monreal in the semi-final home game last year. He was creaking at the end of last season. Cost us a semi-final against Griezmann. One year later, he's still here in the final, completely dead. His contract runs out in two minutes. Another he, he was awful on Pedro's goal, yeah. He just couldn't track him. Uh, another player we could have walked out on a free transfer. We also should have wanted him. We could have got rid of him and replaced him with a younger version and upgraded our team that way. But what do we do? We hold on. We hold on to our friends until our friends let us down in the key moments. So we have no platform. We have no basis. That's why our centre midfielders stay at home because when they look behind them, they don't see security. They see they see stress. Right, so that's why they stay at home. So we become disconnected. So we're looking at connect connectors. And Aaron Ramsey is a great connector. But I'm not sure he could connect his team against on this night. I, I honestly don't. And, I, and sometimes when we did play that cup final back three, and we're, we're not going to press, by having two behind the one, you do create an arrival situation. You do create, you do say to their defenders, we're going to put one man there to fix all of you, but we're going to arrive into space. But sometimes by having two against the, the back four, 
they took away our best two uh, best two players and we couldn't support them with the right level of quality i think it's very difficult i think the team is is in an emotional state where they lack confidence in particularly away from home i think it's been a consistent issue for many for many for many years let's be honest and and how we react to going one down if we don't react with structurally, our structure breaks down. And suddenly on the screen I was looking at, all I could see was grass and no players in it. Suddenly we become individuals. We move away from the structure because the desperation of trying to reach the target overtakes our structure within the team. It overtakes it. When we're ahead, we hold on to our structure a lot more. It was all about the first goal. And I think as a, as a coach, you sometimes have to work out the emotional state of your team. And when we go a goal down, we have to develop a structural change in the team that brings people closer together, that holds the game for a period, that keeps us in the game. We don't suddenly chase the game and shoot after the ball and spread the game. Because what you do, you know, when you have possession, you make the pitch big. Right, you start to split, but we have to be more controlled. We have to bring distances together so, so we can stop momentum. We can stop people. We can, we can counter foul people when they're trying to break against us, but we have to be more competitive that way. So that's a coaching issue, in my opinion, about what we do when we go one down, but also what we do when we go one down. We, we don't. We open the game up and then that opens up our weakness, which is our recovery speed in the center of the pitch and our back line and our ability to track people run naturally across the pitch. We're not very good. We're not very good. We are not robust. We are not dominant. We are not built that way. We are a club that's been built for many, many years about what we do on the football. And we have to decide, okay, what do we do now? How do we build a platform? Emotion of this team is weak. I have to move to a structure which keeps people connected, closer together, and we become a contiguous unit that moves around the pitch, much more competitive, much more physical, to make sure that we can get the most on this group. And I think it's just the next phase for this team. A lot of it, this isn't a criticism of the players at the back line, but if we can have a centre-back pairing that can cope into with two full-backs in the back four, it opens up so many tactical options. But we haven't got that at the moment. We we just haven't. And, I, and we just need to address our situation. So we can build a platform. We can start to see a base state that you're looking for earlier, a base state of play. We can't, because every tweak we make is to cover weakness. And it's not the way you grow a club or grow a team or grow a strategy. Every tweak we make, we we do it ourselves on the podcast. Let's play him because he can't do this. He can't do that. We play a back three because we can't trust him. So we have to drop off, make the pitch big. It just looked too big. And they were sharper and they grew sharper. They We're bringing on Willock. They're bringing on Willian. It's a different ball game. It's a mm. different ball game, and it really is. And it's just something we have to accept and develop into into the into the next season. I don't disagree with any of that, and yet I think Emery choked. I think he completely choked. And I I, I would say it this way: Did you predict this lineup absolutely spot on, Clive? Well, you most did. people predicted the lineup. You did, yeah. Most I did. Predicted I did. Yeah. I, gu- I guarantee you, Tim and Paul did. I don't think there was on- the one-hour right. uproar before no. the game. No. So here's my point. Here's my point. What has Emery's one thing been this whole season? We say, I oh, can't guess his lineups. Oh, his lineups are so unpredictable. Never know what he's going to do, that guy. Big games, he always has a solution. Against Spurs, what did he do? At Wembley, back four, 4-2-3-1. Lock is that up front, Oba on the bench. Didn't see that coming. 
What do you do against United? Back three with Ozil behind the two strikers. What do you do against Chelsea in the home game? Four diamond two. Didn't see that coming. He had strategies for each game. What did he do Do here? He just went with what's worked in the Europa League. I've been getting it. You know, I think he panicked. I think he choked. Instead of trusting his... that's not panicking. No. That's developing continuity. um, That's not panicking. All right, I'll pull pull Paul into this debate. Well, let me say this. I think he had a strategy that worked really well in the home game against Chelsea, and I think that... There, there were a lot of clear advantages against this Chelsea team, especially when Conte started, which we didn't think would happen, to playing a, a, a three or four man midfield, the diamond or the, or the fourth. Well, you, you know, you'd have to bench a striker. That's a big call. But um, if you go with a four three three, but I just I think the point is that this is a coach who throughout the season showed a willingness to have a specific plan for these big games that he could roll out to to really neutralize what these good teams do well. And in this game, he went with just. What got him there in the Europa League? And I, I, we said on the podcast, Clive, we both worried about this. Are we going to be able to create enough danger? Are we going to be able to connect the departments? Are the strikers going to get cut free? Is this a game for Ozil? Can he be intense off the ball? And all the things that I'm sure Emery was worried about, too, came to fruition. And, and I know you're chomping at the bit to come back in, but let me just bring Paul yeah. in first. Well, because Paul's going to have to go at the, at the top of the hour of okay. our recording. So, oh, so you'll have tons of time to, to go wild on this. Paul, why don't you add to that and, and shoot down my ridiculous proposition? No, I think it's it's basically right. I think it was exacerbated by the fact that this lineup has two strikers, and therefore, if they become isolated, if we're not really feeding them, and really the only person who was firing was Chaka. Um, I thought he actually, for the most part, had a good game with the ball at his feet. He didn't have a good um, game in the post-match press conference. We'll come to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but anyway. Um, with two strikers who are who are going to be looking to push forward and looking to be supplied for the most part, we became even more predictable than if we'd had a, a, a different formation that they were that they become comfortable with. So by the end of the first half, you could kind of almost rule out the first three players: Ozil, Aubameyang, and uh, Lacazette were not weren't really troubling. Uh, Chelsea, and uh, and that put an undue strain on the rest of the, the the team. And if you look at the goals and how they came, we we became overstretched, especially as the game went on with Maitland Niles pushing forward, um, and that just opened up the game for Hazard to make us look foolish. But I think the other side of the coin is I don't know. It feels a bit like the Crystal Palace game, where I don't think the manager had a huge amount of options and so you can say that in his favor but the job of the manager is to find the tweaks to find the setup that gives him options from the available players but not having Mkhitaryan's was a huge issue in this game yeah that's fair anybody who thought about would have thought hang on he's basically two ways of going I mean we threw we started to look better going forward when we threw on all the attacking players or all well, the attacking well the minute Awobi or Willick came on you you saw what we missed in in Ozil right I mean you, you, you need that guy who can carry the ball past that suspect Chelsea midfield and we didn't have it you do and that's exactly right but it was a non-formate it wasn't like a formation he just, <laughs> yeah, threw just more throw players on. on yeah yeah which yeah. is not a fix you can't start the game by doing that uh you understand why he kept at ozil around for a while you know th- this was the time of the game you're looking to unlock their defense but i don't think he had a lot of formation off 
options, a lot of obvious ones. He needed to come up with a rabbit out of the hat. I understand how he started with what he started with, but once that looked like they knew how to neutralize it, he needed a rabbit out of the hat. And I'm sure he looked at the bench and thought, Jesus, Mkhitaryan, Ramsey, where are you now? Mm, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that, Paul. I mean, let, let me just ask you one more question because I know we are going to have to say goodbye to you. I mean, I think it is harsh on Maitland-Niles, who I thought showed great personality, and there were moments in the game where he was brilliant, had one fantastic stand-up tackle against uh, Hazard in the box. He tried to drive forward. I thought his first touch was really loose. That's an area that he's going to have to really mm-hmm. focus on, and and his crossing wasn't great, and Kolasinac the same. Uh, just for him, I, I thought it was a 3 out of 10 performance. I mean, what do you make of the fact that we have a system that emphasizes needing big performances from two positions that are being filled by you know, a sort of 5 out of 10 player on one side and a young kid learning his role on the other. Because I, I thought uh, the wingbacks killed yeah. us. I mean, I really do. And that's harsh on Iwobi. I mean, pardon me, on Maitland-Niles. But he, you know, he was culpable in some way or another for three of the goals they scored. Again, I'm, I'm admitting it's harsh on him and that he had a personality-infused performance to some level. But this game and this setup and this this style emphasizes wingbacks and we don't have two world-class wingbacks to emphasize. Well, it was always the thing that was likely to snap, which was if they neutralized Kolasinac, um, you know, where else were we going to hurt them? We couldn't hurt them with Ozil, Laka, and Alba. So it was like, well, let's get a little bit more aggressive with Ainsley, Maitland, Niles, and Hazard's rubbing his hands there, and that's where, especially after the first goal, but he, even the first goal came from that side. I'm not saying it was Maitland, Niles' fault, but you know, they, they, I think it was Emerson put in the ball to Giro for the bullet header. Uh, but you could see we were quite narrow at that point. You could see where the trouble was going to come from as we stretched the play more. I mean, the second goal, I think, is Maitland-Niles pushing up through the middle to try and he, – yeah. he's playing out of, uh, of the middle. He's trying uh, to start a counter. He, yep. mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes him maybe a, a youthful mistake, but we've seen other people do that and – that hole is where they hit us from for the second goal. And, yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, what you what I hope to see next year is that we we actually double down on playing those younger players uh, rather than Emery tries to tighten things, shore, shore things up and be even more conservative as he was in the run-in. But um, when you look at this, you, you see why a manager gets nervous playing the younger players. I thought... Overall, uh, there was a lot to be positive about with Maitland-Niles, but obviously defensive, he's a more attacking-minded guy and uh, given a little license to push forward, uh, created, contributed to the gaps that Hazard was finding over on that side. So unfortunate for the guy, though. Yeah, yeah. I, and again, I want to be clear. All the respect in the world for the job he's done down the stretch this season and, and the work he's put in to, to learn that position. I just think... You know, unfortunately, in a final, you're going to be remembered by your mistakes. And and he had a couple that hurt us. Um, Paul, we got to say goodbye to you. Is that correct? Yep. All right. Well, we're sorry to lose you, but thanks. Paul's on Twitter, pausing my pants. We will talk to you soon, I'm sure. Yeah, you'll have to go Emery out, uh, the three of you, without me, I'm afraid. I've, I, I, I think it'll probably I've just... I've got other places to be. Just be me and Tim, swords out, dueling with Clive. But that's, that's fine. <laughs> talk to you in a bit. All right. <laughs> bye. Uh, so, Tim... I think we should get on to the Ozil topic just real quick before we move on to some of the more uh, overarching issues. Obviously, a a fine contrast can be drawn between the way Lucas Torreira came sprinting off the pitch crying and the way Mesut Ozil came off the pitch, you know, 
basically, I mean, if he had gotten on on all fours and crawled, he might have gotten there faster. <laughs> Let me ask you, first of all, for all the problems I have with Ozil, I thought he had a 5 out of 10 night on a night when a lot of players did. And I'm starting to wonder yeah. if if he had sprinted off the pitch when the board went up, um, would the conversation surrounding him after the final have been different? But the way he went off and the money he's making and the performance he put in and the fact that it was Willick for Ozil and a very pointed switch, what do you make of just sort of the whole situation around that substitution, his performance and the conversation around him that's ensued since then? Yeah, I've, I've said many times on this podcast that inside the stadium, there's uh, not an indifference to Ozil um, amongst Arsenal fans that, that I perceive anyway. Um, but like it's it's very much um, like an online thing, you know, um, like when Ozil doesn't play away from home, which is most away games now. Like there's never any like I remember what it used to be like when someone like Bergkamp or Henri missed a game. It's like oh no, we we haven't got Henri. This is you know this is bad. Like no, like, nobody really cares when Ozil's not playing. From from what I can gather, it doesn't really seem to create any conversation. What what I'll say from um, the point of view of in the stadiums when he was substituted, that that is like the most um, emphatic booing I've ever heard. And I've, I've not, things haven't really, that felt quite sudden to me because, um, like I said, there's, there's almost like, particularly with the traveling fans, I think almost like an apathy towards us. So I don't, I don't pick up that people hate him either per se, but it was really, really savage. It was really savage. And obviously it's like a high emotional moment of the game. Like we've just gone four, one down and everyone's like really cranky and pissed off. And then he starts doing what he always does, which is kind of walk off um, at a snail's pace. And, and you know, so there's a lot of frustration building there. But th- this really wasn't just like a quick, like, expression of frustration. This felt like um, something had really built up and that people are, are just a bit fed up. Uh, and like you say, he, do- he doesn't really ever play awfully. He's, like, too good for that. It's not like he, you know, gives the ball away or pumps it out of play. It's, it's just barely imperceptible um that he's on the pitch at all and i don't think that's entirely his fault i do think emery and Ozil is, is just a bad cocktail the way emery sets his teams up is just not the, the way to get the best out of Ozil. but i also do think he's in a, a state of protest effectively i think he's doing lots of things um which he wants it to be known he's unhappy you know did you hear that story about when he didn't play at burnley and like it came up online that he was playing Fortnite, you know, during the game. And that, that, that felt a little bit pointed to me. Um, and it, it just feels like he's playing up a little bit basically, but, and, and, and look, we've said many times, you can't discuss his performance without the context of the salary. And I, I think that's maybe why patience snapped because people, you know, see him as a blocker to this team and this club going, they're not seeing enough, of the good stuff from him and they understand that his contract is um is a blocker um for us and and actually that's not really his fault that's the club's fault the club gave him the contract and um he's you know they they didn't have to and he doesn't have to surrender it just because we say so um it would be nice if he did a little bit more and he was a little bit more engaged because i even think an Ozil in a team that you know, that isn't really built to get the best out of him should be doing better than this. And I think you're right. I think the fact it was Willock was really pointed. Um, the fact that Willock then did more in his 13 minutes than Ozil did um, made that 
even more pointed and a point well made by the manager. But it, it never felt like this situation was resolved when Ozil came back into the team. I think that was a, a necessity thing rather than because things had been genuinely mended between Ozil and Emery. And I, I think this one might rumble on um, a little bit. And I, I think this will define our summer. Um, and what's quite interesting is that we're quite used to, as Arsenal fans, having like summers dominated by transfer sagas over big players. But this might be the first time that we want the big player to go rather than trying to like beg him to stay. So um, I, I think this one's going to run and run. Unfortunately, I think this is just going to be the, uh, you know, to quote uh, Queens of the Stone Age, it's going to be the feel good hit of the summer. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what the answer is because we're no. not a club that can stick 350,000 a week in the reserves. And, and I think Ozil will be happy no. to do it. He'd be fine sitting at home playing Fortnite, yeah, yeah. collecting his check. I don't I don't get the sense that not playing would make him say, fine, I'll take a wage cut to leave. That's never no. happening. Um, I, think the, I think the Germany thing plays into that. Um, not just because, you know, any feeling justified feelings he has have been personally betrayed, but I, I do think a little bit of his hunger has gone um, since that World Cup and, and everything that happened both to him and to Germany. Um, and, you know, now he's kind of, sunk into a contract with a team that <clears throat> probably isn't going to compete for the duration of his contract. And I do think his hunger's gone a bit. Yeah, well, and the problem is I don't think he can play for Emery anymore effectively. And you can't stick him in the reserves. I, I think you have to sell him and subsidize the wage and take a small fee. As he has to go. If Emery's staying, and look, I, I personally would be okay if he didn't, but if he's staying... I don't think Ozil can be there. I don't see how this team can move forward with Ozil here under these circumstances. Clive, um... I want to just get your thoughts on the way we capitulated in this game because this is the really troubling thing for me. And you touched on how our structure goes, but you know, losing a final to Chelsea one nil isn't wouldn't feel any better at full time, in my opinion, than losing four one. But the extent to which the team just went to pieces is a concern because at one nil, Chelsea's not very good. You know, we could have gotten back into it. Hell, when what we scored is one goal, we could have gotten back into it. But there really just did not seem to be any ability to control the game at that point. And, and I'm curious to get your take on that capitulation and whether it's, you know, it's the players sort of downing tools or losing faith or lacking instruction or whether it's just that we chase the game too much. How, how do you interpret what happened once we went behind? Yeah, I've, I've, I've touched it already, right? Well, yeah, that, that we just pitch, we run up the pitch, the pitch and becomes, try to win. Yeah. The pitch becomes bigger, right? We start to become individuals. It's not the first time, Elliot. How many times at Anfield have we been smashed in like 20 minutes? How many times we those big games? <laughs> How many times these big games? We can, I think we conceded four goals in twenty-four minutes. It's not. It's not the first time. This is. This is what we do. We do this for two, three years, right? And, and we forget because we're. We're. Well, I'm a hopeful, positive fan, and I forget. And I forget about these moments when we score one, concede one. I did at Old Trafford twice. You know, our ability to manage game states is key. Some of that comes from individual quality. Some of that comes from leadership. Some of that comes from coaching. Some of that comes from team shape and structure and what you do at certain times. Some of that comes from athleticism and physicality to compete in duels, knowing when to compete, knowing when to impose yourself, knowing when to step away and sit into a, into a block. It's all about reactions to different things that happen in a game. And, and we are rubbish at that. 
and we have been for a long time because we have a culture of playing a, a playerish culture we play we flow and nobody epitomizes that more than ours or in but the problem is the player that i used to call the oil in our engine was dispossessed more than anybody else in this game and if that player is dispossessed more than anybody else in your game your team is disconnected so you can't build momentum you can't build pressure you can't make other teams do things they don't want to do and so we then become susceptible to what they want to do to us and the moment the game was broken open we then lose confidence because we're now relying on you know i can't even think i don't, I don't know how i just can't think how many times away from home recently i just can't even think of a game where we've come from one or two goals from behind and, and got something out of the game i, I mean valencia but that's a different kind of situation obviously yeah, yeah but within we, yeah okay because it's, sec- it's a second leg and we were we, and we were leading we, we were still ahead we were still ahead i'm only saying ahead, it because i'm sure other people will think of it but i agree with you that okay. doesn't count yeah yeah i just can't think and i you know I, I go to a few home games a year about 10 games so I, i've been in the stadiums i just can't think oh no when we're away what, what actually happens so we lack a little bit of um assurance and confidence in these situations so so who do we blame who do we blame i mean seriously who do we i've got a thought this has been this has been going on for three four years who do we blame wenger oh sorry no seriously who do we blame i'm asking you the question who do we blame i mean look candidly i think that that is the part where coaching shows up the most that's me i'm not saying it's right I think coaching shows up in scenarios that you can be coached to manage scenarios and that reacting to scenarios is how you prepare. It comes down more to how you prepare players because if they are left to their own devices to try to solve those problems, one of the problems with with, with Arsene Wenger, I fully believe is against weaker teams where we could just go out and out talent them. That was where he thrived, but against teams where the players really needed a plan and didn't have one, we saw what happened. They panicked. It didn't work. So I, I do think coaches. For a while. I've, yeah. I've watched I've watched games against Bayern Munich when we've when we've gone a goal down, conceded one, should have scored, and conceded one two minutes later. This has been a constant thread within this club, and and this is why I bang on all the time about about change and really changing things, really focusing on those key people that have been there throughout that period of time. It's very difficult. It's not an easy thing to fix, but you really have to go for it. And if I've got a criticism of Emery, I thought he was going for it and he stepped back from the brink because results dropped away mm. and he wanted to achieve his targets. I thought he was fighting that dressing room. I thought he was taking them on. He was establishing himself. And the crowd reaction to certain players not playing was quite, was quite strong. Results didn't go his way. Other people that he put into those positions didn't deliver. So he was forced to go back to players that really run the dressing room. And basically, when it comes to the crunch, we haven't delivered. And then we've been part of that, right? As a group, the last eight games, I think we conceded something like 18 goals. We haven't delivered. We haven't had any stability. We've been, we've been overcome by the prize. That's what's happened. Another consistent thread. When Arsenal are playing under pressure, we don't deliver. And that's the truth. We bowl up to Burnley and beat them free. Nice and lovely. Well, lovely once day top four sunshine. was gone. 
<laughs> yeah, once top four was gone. Well, you know, what happened to, we were lucky at Watford and what, you know, at Leicester, down to 10, unfortunately. But, you know, couldn't we even keep that down to, to, to one goal, right? And let, let's not talk about Wolves, right? They just jogged up and beat us. So these people are looking at our team and they are saying, they're not very good, right? It's particularly under pressure. They're not very good. And that's what Chelsea did. They create, they had a situation where they, they made the game become a pressured game. And when the, and hopefully they will get the first goal. When they got the first goal, it was over because now we have to do something under pressure. And that's our biggest weakness. And I've been, I've, I've been online today talking about mentality and culture. You know what? I'm actually bored of it because people are not really, they're not really, they're not really getting it. And, and to be honest, people, there are people in this in this club that we need to take out, but but that's how you change a culture, and I've been saying that for a long time. It's not personal; you just need to change it. You just need to affect change. You need to show everybody that they're vulnerable. You need to show everybody who my God, he's gone. I want to stay. I better take. I better step my game up. You need to create an atmosphere in the dressing room that is absolutely I want to stay here because this is the place to be and you have to build to do that and we are not in position to build yet we haven't got the structures in place we haven't seen what type of club this is in the transfer market yet under this new structure we don't know do we trust them hell no why should we look at January told us right so we've got a we got this is what's happening. This is what's coming up. And what's hurting everybody today, apart from the actual defeat and the embarrassment, is as we look forward, we're not sure what we're going to get. Mm. I, I would say one point about that, though, is that, like, if, to your point, Emery tried to make his stand, Ramsey is in the is in the departure lounge, so I'm not going to rely on him, and Mesut Ozil is not doing what we need him to do, so I'm not going to rely on him, and he, he tried to take a stand against some big personalities in the team, and if he had to relent because the results weren't going his way or the dressing room was pushing back or someone from over his head pressured him to get those players back in the team, you do have to wonder if he lost that battle, can he recover the dressing room? The team collapsed down the stretch after he gave in on those players. We had a little good run and then it all fell apart when Ramsey obviously got injured. I, I do think if you try to make that stand and it doesn't work and there's sort of a coup, then then you have to wonder, can we, you we get the respect we don't back? Know that, we don't know. I know. Don't. I, it's pure speculation. I get that. Tim, I, I know you want to add on the capitulation once we went behind. Um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about pressure because I think there's an interesting point to be made there, Clive, that does relate to Emery. But, you know, Tim, for you, that capitulation is something you've talked about a lot. So, I mean, in this game, <clears throat> is this just sort of the apotheosis of what you've been describing with Arsenal and, and our challenges when faced with adversity? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to I'm going to refer to something I have referred to before um, on this podcast recently. And I, I might repeat myself a bit for which I, I slightly apologize. But I think it's a point that really needs to be hammered home. I, something really, really changed my thinking was a couple of weeks ago when I kind of I sat down and spoke to Joe Montemoro, the Arsenal women manager. And I really wanted to get a sense of how he so quickly turned that team around and how he got buy in. And so many things he said, I just couldn't help but relate um, to the situation with the men's team. And I think you're completely right. He, I, I was okay with him kind of cold-shouldering Ramsey and Ozil. I was all right with that, which is not to say I definitely thought it was the right decision, but I thought, right, okay, this this is what needs to be done. Someone needs to roll up their sleeves and, and do this. And it might not be pretty, and it might affect the team for a little while, but it's necessary. And I think he has capitulated on that. Um, and, and what 
and and so what kind of Joe was talking about, he was talking about how because he's also a manager that likes to make changes according to the opposition. But he said, I didn't do that for the first six months. I, I picked the same team, same formation, because I wanted them to believe in our style. I wanted I wanted there to be a core style and I wanted them to believe in it. And so I didn't really change it around for six months. And then once I had a pre-season, then I started making the tweaks because the way he put it to me was basically, I give them the tools to get at least a six or seven out of 10 every single game. And then we make some tweaks and, and, and it's kind of up to them to carry them out at that point. But the, the core is solid. And this is what I mean, what I was talking about earlier. I, I don't think there is a core with Emery. I think the tweaks are all there is. And, um, and I, I don't, and the reason I think we capitulate when we go behind is because there's nothing there for the players to fall back on. Mm. There's nothing that they believe in that they'll fight for. And, uh, uh, you know, to kind of, um, emphasize Clive's point as well. Another one of the things Joe told me, right, he, he, he didn't change that much with the playing squad over the summer. But one thing he did do was he actually dropped the goalkeeper. He brought in a new goalkeeper who'd been a backup at Lyon and basically hadn't played for a year. And we had a goalkeeper, Sari Van Vienendal, who's very popular, really good, popular with the fans, popular in, in the squad. And he brought um, another goalkeeper in and everyone thought she was going to be backup and he put her in. And I asked him about that and he said, um, basically, he didn't feel like Sari, the, the, the number one goalkeeper, had been challenged enough. And he thought it would be good for her to have that challenge. But he also said, I wanted to introduce somebody into the group who basically had gone to Leon, who are the best team in the world. She was the second goalkeeper. She didn't play. And he said, I wanted to bring someone into the group who would kill to play, who was absolutely desperate, who was taking a massive risk in her career, coming to a country where she didn't really speak English, taking on a big challenge with a team with an established international goalkeeper and he said i wanted that in the group i wanted everyone to see that nobody's position is safe and and it, it was one it was it's one of the few decisions of his i questioned um with the women last season but when he explained it i thought that actually that's that's really insightful this is more than this is a, this was about more than just picking another goalkeeper this was about um you know how that decision affects the group and this, this is the thing. I don't think Emery has got that kind of buy-in from the group. And I don't think, other than Ozil, it's mutiny per se. I just think, I just have this sense, and I can only speculate and I don't know. I just have this sense that they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing and that there's nothing there that they really truly believe in. And, and that's why they won't fight tooth and nail for it because it's not because they don't care or they're overpaid wastrels or they're crap or any, or that they hate the manager. It's just that there's not anything there for them to get their teeth into, to buy into. And that I think is why we get these listless performances. And when we go one nil up, we're kind of a different beast. We look buoyant then, but it's largely, I think, because though it's like a, they're individual feats rather than you know even like the we we saw like a few like very nicely constructed goals earlier in the season where you know we're playing out from the back and you think okay this you know this you know this is emery ball this is this is what he wants and he, and that's gone as well and it's basically when i watch arsenal now i can't work out what they're trying to do so 
I'll be honest, I got a bit lost on that question earlier, like about the tactical setup of the game and Chelsea <laughs> seeding the wide spaces and stuff, because I don't know what we were trying to do. I, don't, I can't follow it. I don't understand it. I don't understand what I couldn't sit here and tell you that like Emery made wrong decisions per se about this game. I don't know what decisions he made. That's the point. And that for me is why I would personally, I would cut the cord because, and again, I'm speculating. I don't have like the inside knowledge. It's my gut. I just have a feeling that this is it, that this is kind of it with Emery and that it's not really going to change that it's not like we're not building towards something. I think it's all just a little bit listless. And and I think the players think that as well. And I don't think they want to think that, but I, I think they do. And I think you can see it. Yeah, and, and look, I think there's a few things to realize. You know, if you take over uh, a Sevilla, if you take over an Everton, you know, if you're, if you're David Moyes, you have players that want to win, are willing to buy into whatever philosophy you have if it works. I think when you take over at big clubs, PSG, Barcelona, Manchester United, for example, Arsenal, and you have players like Mesut Ozil and Aubameyang and Lacazette and Aaron Ramsey, they want to not just win, they want to play a certain way. Those players want to play a certain way. And I think in his heart of hearts, at his core, I think Emery is a little conservative. I think Emery wants to play football that is a little safer. I think that he, under pressure, opts to defend instead of attack. And, you know, Clive, you mentioned attack, and and, and I want to let you talk about your coaching philosophy here in a second. So let me just go on one for about 30 seconds, maybe even 20. A game can be pressurized, but within the game, you can make that pressure go away with the way you approach it. And what I mean by that is look at Pep. How does Pep make the game less pressurized for his team and more pressurized for the opposition? By having all the ball, by having all the chances. You look at Kepa. Kepa wanted to throw the ball in his net. We never put him under enough pressure. Four shots in the first hour, 12 shots in the last 30 minutes when the game was lost. Um, The way you make a game less pressurized for your team, if you're a big club, is you impose your attack on their defense. You hold the ball for 65 or 60% of the game, or you take 15 shots and a half, and you you basically let your team feel that they are dominating. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to win. But that takes some of that pressure off. But when you sit and you don't hold the ball and your left wing back passes so poorly that he's the worst passer on the pitch, even worse than your goalkeeper, and the ball is constantly coming back down that wing, and you're constantly trying to spray it out to either an inexperienced or a a technically not gifted wing back, and these attacking players can't get the ball at their feet, don't get a touch, don't get a shot, don't get involved— you're not creating pressure. We didn't pressurize Chelsea. And I look at the end of the game, and I realize it's game state. It's totally game state. I get it. But when Willick is on and Awobi is on, and they're running past Chelsea defenders, and we're taking 12 or 11 shots in the last 20 minutes and creating chance after chance, again, totally get it. Game state, game was over. But that's how you flip the feeling of pressure onto the other team. And I just feel that Emery's football does not take the pressure off his players and put it on the opposition very effectively. And a great example of that, I hate to bring it up, is the Barcelona second leg against PSG where he went a little conservative and he put all the pressure on his players with the way he approached that game. And I get it, the referee helped a lot there, but it's the point that the pressure, because of the way he set up, was placed more heavily on his players. And that is a dangerous way to go in big games and in general, over the course of a season, I think his philosophy leaves his players 
we, not able to pressurize the opposition as much as they could. If there's one thing that Arsene Wenger did against small teams is he put them under a mountain of pressure because he just did let his talented players run around and attack the crap out of them. Um, and we just don't take a lot of shots. We don't create a lot of big chances. And that puts the pressure back on you. So, Clive, for me, I, I want a manager. Back. Well, it's getting back. Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's get to a situation where when, when Arsenal Football Club is on the pitch, the balance of the play puts the pressure on the opposition and and for me, I look at a couple statistics this season. The shots we took, the big chances we created, the XG4. I'm, I get we're not great defensively, and that's not totally Emery's fault. But we didn't put our opposition under enough pressure this season consistently. And against Chelsea, I don't think... Kepa wanted to throw a goal in his net. I don't think we ever made them nervous enough. And I think that is consistently where he has failed this season, is creating environments for our team to pressurize the opposition more. I, I, I mean... Give me. I know you really back this guy, and you believe that he can turn it around. No, so, no, no, no. Well, no, no. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't uh, want to put so words in your mouth. Tell, tell me what you're. Please feeling. don't. Please don't put words. No, in sorry. Your mouth, yeah, right? I know, and there'd so be nothing wrong with really that. By important. the way, okay. I think what I my situation is with Emery is I feel if we were to change the manager, you're just changing a cog in a wheel that's dysfunctional, right? So I look at the I look at the wheel, I look at how the manager is supported. And I include Arsene Wenger in his latter days, by the way, how he wasn't supported and had to carry the club. And then Bensi got some money and then wasted it. And then and then we have Emery, who hasn't been supported to levels of a Man City that could deploy a philosophy, can have a ruthless dressing room because you're swapping Bernardo Silva for David Silva. And then guess what? Your players play better. Right? So, so it's a different scenario. And so I and I look at other managers and I think, well, the reason why I support him because I think I know the job he's been brought in to do. I call him a cleaner. He's been brought in to clean up the mess, right? So the reason why I support him is I want him to clean up the mess because in a year or so's time, I want somebody else in. But what's the point of giving this job to Mikel Arteta and watching him die and don't give him any support and ruin his career? I'm using him as an example, by the way. What's the point of giving it to a young manager that's trying to grow something when you're not allowing him to grow with the with the right level of contractual situation, with the right age profile of the squad, with players that are multifunctional, versatile, that allow you to put multiple systems in place and succeed? So that's why I don't focus on the manager, because you can change it. And no one's giving me any massive names, by the way. I like Nagelsmann. I like Hassan Haller. I think they'd be great at Arsenal, but not yet. Because we've got some dirty work to do. You know, and, we, and this guy is the perfect guy to do the dirty work. He doesn't have relationships with people. He doesn't want to put his arm around shoulders. He's a coach. And he's not looking for connections. He's looking to deliver on the pitch. And he hasn't been able to do it with this squad at the moment. So it's gonna be, I, heard, I read something last night about what sort of targets do you got. He said, I'm not sh- quite sure of our targets at the moment. That's been dealt with by the club. So you, we've gone from a manager that absolutely knows everything about the club to somebody that's actually just a coach. And I think the players feel this, to, to add to Tim's point. I think they've had somebody that's been in their top pockets all the time and is emotionally connected to them to somebody that they can't connect to. They don't love. I spoke about that before about we don't love this guy. He's just doing a job for us. He's doing a functional job. He's a functional coach. And and that's it. And I, I, I likened him to Rafa Benitez, although he has had love in the past. But you know what I meant by that in style. Mm-hmm. Right? He's he's that type of professional coach. So I just think he's a cleaner. And so let's allow him to clean because there's work to do. 
Now, if we want to bring somebody else in, I'd be quite interested to know if we do that, I think we have to change. I think we have to change how we support managers significantly. So I wouldn't be against that. If we did bring in a, a some, you know, more lovable coach per se, uh, a hipster coach, I'd be okay with that. But let's support him. Let's not just bring him in and do what we've done to Emery in the latter years or, or, or periods of, of Wenger's reign. Let's support him properly. And, you know, we we're in a situation where from the top down this club, we're not set up correct. There is no sort of common goal, common presence. We, we all know that our owner was not at this game. You know, he, he was not there. Right, and so there is nothing. There's a there's there's just nothing that we believe in from the top down. So why should the players believe in it? Why should they? Why shouldn't they look after their pockets? Why shouldn't they look after their families? If we're stupid enough to give them that money, why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't Carl Jengerson stay here for eight years on forty grand a week? Why shouldn't he? Because we're stupid enough. We're stupid enough to do it. So we can change the manager. Of course we can. Why not? We've been asking for major change for the last five years or so. Let's change another one. But the fundamental issues are far greater than that, in my opinion. And that's why I don't leap to that conclusion immediately. And if you want to talk about chance creation, and we talk about the style in the football, well, the style in the football is great when we win, and when do we lose, it's crap. And by the way, let's look at our creative midfielders. What the fuck are they doing? <laughs> well, we don't have you any. See what I mean? We don't have any. Well, exactly. <laughs> what are they doing? No, seriously, what are they doing? You know, so and so we could easily lose three of them this year of the four that we we would all spring to mind, and we saw maybe a fifth one last night who's nineteen. But we haven't got the resources to call on in the right state of their careers. So that's why I don't focus on the major immediately because I just think he's a tool towards change, and that's it. He's a cleaner, and he's cleaning up house. So within that context, I support him. Right? I don't think he's he's the dream person, but I support him within the context by which we hired him. And that was in a two-year process to get us back into the Champions League. Yeah, it's simple now as we have that. to do it. And, and, <laughs> and, I, and I thought we could have done it in one, and we all did. And that's where disappointment comes in. Right? So, and now I'm thinking, you know what? And I'm less confident if we can do it next year because the, the landscape of football is changing around it's us. Worse. It's getting worse for us. It's getting yeah, worse. I, I and we are, we are not reacting. We sat here when Chelsea arrived. We sat there and smiled. They know we're after. They won't do anything. Since Abramovich has come, they've won five premierships. They've won five FA Cups. They've won Champions League. They've won three League Cups. And they've won two Europa Leagues. Yes, they've got £1.5 billion pounds worth of investment into their club over that period. But they have now developed a culture where winning is all that matters. And it's been backed up by the owner. What are we trying to do? So I bring back to Tim's point, which I think Tim made a great point in there about what we are trying to do. For the first time when we played that game last night, it was position versus possession. Positionally, we covered the pitch in our shape. We all know our shape. They were trying to get possession to control the ball. And I looked at it and I thought, you know what? We're just trying to go wide and cross it. What are we trying to do here? I, I want us to be a bit more direct and get the ball into areas earlier to put their, to move their defenders around and stress them. I want us to change how we played because I didn't think we had that was going to hurt them. And I thought, go on, go direct. Go direct early. Get Aubameyang down that side and let's go and join him. 
and let's create volume of numbers. There's no one to but join him, didn't. though. There's no one to join him. There's Where's no, the extra body there, in the there, field, there. though? Yeah, well, we could join him as a group. We can squeeze up, squeeze the play, and get second efforts. That's it. You squeeze up. You go early down the side. You squeeze up. You set the play. You create You create transitions. You could you in a smaller space. Torreira becomes a different beast in a smaller space. Shaka can spin it out. And he, but you've got to do it in a compressed space. But we didn't. I thought we were passive at the back. I thought we were passive at the back. And I thought we were too big from front to back. And that space was what killed us. Mm. Massively killed us in the game. And I just felt once it became a green grass game, as always, we were done. Yeah. No, I, look, and, and I don't have a problem with any of that. I, I think, for me, when you're at a big club... The, the the primary goal is the league. We've all said that. We've all agreed with that. The Cups are a bit of a, of a crapshoot. We know Emery has a good track record in this competition, this final obviously notwithstanding. Uh, but the league is the, is the target. And I think for a, a big club to thrive in a league, you've got to have your talented players engaged and enjoying their football. And... You know, it's it's really tough because you look at Jose Mourinho. Jose Mourinho had a lot of success, but why does he fail after a couple of seasons? Why did his message start to fall on deaf ears? Because, yeah, it's fun to win a Champions League or a league, but after a couple of seasons, no one wants to play Jose Mourinho football. No one wants to play that football. Nobody wants to be yelled at for not tracking back when they're a 100 million pound winger. You know, they, they want to go do what Pep's doing or they want to go do what, what Klopp is doing. And I just think you got to be able to go to these weaker teams in the Premier League and have fun playing football that batters them. And... You know, I, I think, look, where I'll give Emery credit is, it's a, it's a lesson. Life is a lesson, the season is a lesson, and there is a possibility that next season he comes back and he has a little bit different resources and he has players that have buy-in and, and he can go and lean into to that philosophy more. But, Tim, we have to look forward now. Obviously, Raul and Vinay in their interview talked about how important Champions League football was. I mean, you know, they tried to hand-wave it a little. We have a, we have a contingency if we don't get there, but obviously it's more money if we have it. Socrates gave a really illuminating interview. I don't know if he meant it to be, but before this final, he said, no one wants to be in this competition. We want to be in the Champions League. And that's about as naked a a statement as you can make. Newcastle may be bought by, you know, uh, another billionaire who can spend whatever he wants. Um, Wolves have money. Everton have money. And obviously the other top six teams are, are who they are. So in the context of where we go from here, what has to happen now and how would you approach this summer and next season to try to prevent Arsenal from falling away longer term and, and dealing with five, six, seven, eight, ten years in the wilderness where we're <clears throat> a fifth and sixth place team perpetually or worse? Yeah, it's a difficult one, isn't it? The, the, so the one thing I'm quite, I'm quite positive about, uh, well, I think positive is over-egging it, but when, when Emery spoke last night, he said something about like, Maybe some players need to go. And um, I, I think I know probably the one player he absolutely had in mind when he said that. Um, but, I, you know, I think he's got a few. And, and that may, you know, maybe makes me think, OK, maybe he's going to go back to being, you know, no more Mr. Nice Guy and we'll, we'll go in a direction. Um, I, I saw a, a tweet earlier from uh, Blavich who who said, like, look, we're not going to be able to buy top quality now. That's just not going to be possible with our budget. But what we can do is at least we can become more balanced. So we, we might, you know, we might not be buying from the top shelf anymore. But, um, you know, just some players who make us a little bit more competitive. And I, and I, I think that's a, 
a really well-made point, and that's got to be our aim at the moment. You know what, Tim? We've got to... Then it's a good thing we have a world-class scout and a top-quality technical director (laughs) in place to get us... Oh, wait, never mind. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And and, and that's that's got to be the aim now, that, that actually Emery... He knows his players now, um, and I thought that was, you know, when he said that, you know, the season's over, and he said, right, we want to move a few of these guys on, and he's done his assessment, and he's got to try and move towards, like I was saying, like a style, a platform that 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 like these players can grip and understand and believe in, and you know that that might not be. You know, we might not be buying the likes of Aubameyang or Lacazette to do that, but if we can get some kind of young, hungry players, we can up like the physical um, side of the team. You know, we might be buying a few James Milners, a few Jordan Hendersons, like Liverpool did. Um, you know, I, I, I don't have a problem with that because what's clear at the moment is that this is going to take some time um, and we're not going to be, this is like a two or three year thing at least really. So we've got to take stock, take some painful decisions um, that need to be taken um, to try and move forward. Because what we've kind of tried to do this year, I think, is really try and wing it back into the Champions League. And to be fair, we should have been able to do that, um, given the way the league season unfolded. Um, but that was that was only ever going to be like a little bit of a bridge. That That wasn't, you know, getting back into the Champions League wasn't going ever going to mean that these painful decisions didn't have to be made. So in effect, I don't think what needs to be done has changed. We've just got slightly less money to do it with. And obviously we're a third year in the Europa League now. Um, and so something really terrible could happen on Saturday to make that even worse. And unfortunately, it is impossible to ignore that context as well because that's you know, that's very stark. Um, and so really what we've got to try and do is transition, I think, towards a style. And and build for that specifically? I mean, because that yes. that obviously means ha- having either, either Emery sets the style or someone else does, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and personally, my preference would be for someone else because I don't, I'm not sure Emery is really capable of that. I'm not really sure. He's that manager. Um, well, he's on record this week as saying he views us as a team that should be a chameleon. So it, it kind of under, yeah. undercuts exactly what you're suggesting you should do. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but does just you, you you I read chameleon as uh, as somebody that can manage the gain states we talk about. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, By I, the way, Clive, Clive, if if he means, I, I if he means really it that, that way, way, fine. I, there's always a little bit of inscrutability about his language, and that's not a criticism. I I think he's if done you brilliantly. Read the article, he follows it with gain state quotes. So I want a team that can press. I want a team to have the ball. I want a team that can can hurry the opposition. He he quotes he quotes game state scenarios okay. after after well, that quote. And so I I think he wants a team that can react. So this is what we're talking about. All right, let, the let me team's get some major weakness though. is a la- is a lack of reaction. Let, let me get some specificity from you, Clive, because there's I, I want to specifically dive into this then because we have a task ahead of us next season that I think is a daunting one in that. We didn't get it done in top four this season um, with a big opportunity presenting itself, but a lot of things fell into place to give us that opportunity, namely the other teams chasing top four kind of collapsing in the same manner that we did, just not quite as badly as we did. Um, Next season, I think we may have to take some medicine, and the medicine may be Project Youth. Next season may have to be about incorporating academy players, getting younger, 
renewing. Because I I look at this like a plane that's getting more and more uh, beat up. You know, when you have this plane, and it's not flying great, and you're like, slap a 30-year-old Mkhitaryan on it, and it gets back up in the air, and you're like, slap a 29-year-old Aubameyang on it, it gets back up in the air. But like, at some point, that plane is going to crash, because Mkhitaryan, older. Aubameyang, older. Mustafi, well, not Mustafi, but Socrates, older. Koscielny, done. Nacho, done. Um, you know, all over the pitch, there are key players. Ramsey gone on a free. Players leaving on free. Players that don't have resale value. And so, for you, you always talk about blow it up. Is the best way to blow it up next season to say, you know what? Willick, you're going to get more games. ESR, you're going to get games if he's not going back on loan. You know, uh, Saka and Nelson and um, Bielik to some extent and Chambers and Holding. I mean, do we have to use next season to try to build value in and experience for this young crop because we can't buy our way out of this problem anymore? Yeah, I... I... I think I'd like to see more of them. I think it's a it's a default reaction to say throw the kids in. I would like to see more of them. I would like to see their pathways slightly opened. But when it comes down to it, we're trying to fix what we're trying to fix. We're trying to fix our ability to react under pressure. That's what we're trying to fix, in my opinion, and and that's the overall mission statement. How can we react under pressure? How can we react to the game? And that needs level of versatility on the on the playing style. That needs a different type of athlete on the pitch, in my opinion, that makes us more competitive and more threatening going the other way with a lot more devastation. Right? And there needs to be a change in attitude. And I, I, I this is why I do have a worry. I, I do have a worry because... Although we have gone through a lot of change, we've still got a bloated squad, and a lot of those players have been there a long time. We have to take out about nine or ten players, and that is very difficult to do in one window. It's almost impossible. So I'd like to see a speed up. I'd like to see a better version of Granite Shaka there. But we're going to need him to, to carry us through this team. We're going to need that player to maybe manage some of the younger players while we try to transition. And so, specifically, I don't think the youngsters should be thrown in. I think they should be used more. I think they should get more minutes. I think there are cup competitions to use them. I think this is the time to develop them. But we do need some new centre-backs and full-backs. That's the key thing to create the platform from which we can put youngsters in. And that's the key. If, you're, if your back door's creaky, no matter how good you are, if you're running backwards and your defenders are not, are not stopping goals going in your net, you look a bad player. Maitland Niles was a very promising first half. In the second half, catastrophe. It's difficult. Even when it's particularly with your last one youngster, the moment you make a mistake, it's hard for you. Um, well, we make it hard for you. So, so my view is no. Although I would like to see it. I am intrigued by Willock, I must say. I, I think he was a very interesting player the last two times I've seen him. And I know there have been unique situations, but he's something that's happened. Well, he's been coming a while. What we saw last night, we know the next game, could, he could be invisible. So he needs to build trust. So there is opportunity for these guys. But yeah, I still think we need to add. We need to buy as well as promote. Yeah, I just worry that without Champions League, with the, the way the club is seen from the outside, with a, a, a situation with our squad right now where there's aging stars and then young players behind it, like 
can we buy, can we use the market to fix our problem? What I worry about is the best we can hope to buy right now is Europa League talent, unless we buy really young. If we buy 19 and 20, they could turn into Champions League talent. If we're going to go buy players who are 26 years old, I got news for you. We're buying Europa League players. Because a 26-year-old Champions League caliber player isn't coming to Arsenal right now. We don't have the money for it. And we don't have the pedigree for it. So, uh, the prestige for it. So, I I wonder how much we can use the market to build a Champions League club if we're going to be buying Europa League talent. And that's the danger of the Europa League is that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, Tim, I want to finish with this. The owner of this club did not attend this final. That is a... That is a symbolic problem. It is not an actual mm-hmm. problem in the sense that we didn't lose because he wasn't there. <clears throat> but I think it is mm-hmm. symbolic of the fact that for any organization to have a direction, a clear direction, it comes from the top. And that while FSG, for example, have let the people they put in place run that club, they have been very vocal and very clear in what their goals are. They've laid out a path for getting there and they've gotten there and they put very smart people in place, very effective people in place to get it there. And when people haven't gotten it done, they've been removed. A lot of people point to Stan as the single biggest issue with the club. But I think they point to it basically as he won't put any money in. No, I get it. Money solves yeah, all yeah. problems. If he put in a billion dollars, we'd be a better club. But for me, the problem with Stan is his willingness to let the rot happen. Arsene Wenger is fading. Mm. It's fine. If yeah. Gazidis doesn't want to fire him, he can stay. Gazidis isn't effective, and you know he's making eyes at AC Milan. No problem. Oh, you know my, my chief scout comes in, and he's gone. Hey, Raul and Vinay, you guys are in charge now. Do what you got to do. You know, Emery had a good season or a bad season. I don't know. Beats me. Who's Unai Emery? I'm not going to show up for the final. Like Putting the money aside, is Stan's unwillingness to drive a clear philosophy right down through the club the biggest failure of his ownership? Yeah, absolutely. That that's exactly it. Um, you, you know, I, I I wrote a little bit about this um, earlier today, and 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 the articles up there, and people can see it. But him not showing up, um, that to me moves him from the well. He doesn't do anything actively bad. He just doesn't do anything. But uh, the the phrase I used is actively inactive. That I mean. Arsenal, you know, we've got an image problem at the moment, and not just because we're in, we're going to be in the Europa League for a third season. He's not a stupid man. He understands what that looks like. He understands that the temperature around Arsenal fans. He understands he will be criticised for that. He understands all of that. Um, I'm sure he understands what that says to maybe players we're trying to sign at the moment, like. If you're on the fence about coming to Arsenal and, you know, the Europa League final didn't knock you off the fence, what does that say to you? What kind of club am I coming to where the owner can't even be bothered to turn up for, like, the biggest game in To be fair, it's very years? hard to get there. <laughs> <laughs> like, he can't... And, and, you know, don't give me all this crap about, oh, he sent Josh. And, you know, we all know that, like, Josh is going to be the next owner of Arsenal and all that, that... That that just says that he 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 understands all of this, but he doesn't care. He absolutely doesn't care. And his not being there, it's not just like you say, like it's not actually a problem, like a tangible one that you know that stopped us from winning the game. Where it's a problem is what it does to our image, which is already damaged, is that you know, it's Arsenal look directionless. And then the owner doesn't bother to turn up for this huge game. Like no one's saying he should have even like, you know, been in with the fans or anything with like, 
you know, chucking pints of beer down his neck and wearing an Arsenal scarf, like just turn up. Like it's not difficult. You know, I, I appreciate what I can tell you from experience that Azerbaijan is not an easy place to get to, but I don't think that he'd be, you know, I don't think that Stan Kroenke would be like looking at Skyscanner for like three stopovers in like random hotels in the middle of Turkey. I'm pretty sure he could fly straight in and then fly straight out again. And nobody, you know, nobody would be any the wiser, but you know, this, this, this to me was like an active, I know how this looks and I just don't care. And unfortunately that's, you know, that's hugely disenfranchising for the fans and everything like that. But, you know, we're in a position where, we're going to have to go on our pulling power, you know, our history, our name to try and get players in because we're not that attractive to come to at the moment. And if you're a prospective player and you've got like Arsenal in play and you've got a couple of other clubs interested, I mean, and then you see that and you think, why, why am I going to come here? Because what it does is it takes away optimism. It takes away the faith that anyone could have that this club is going to try to do something to turn this situation around, but they don't find it acceptable. It says that the owner doesn't care, finds it completely acceptable where we are and is perfectly happy with it. It just reeks of a complete lack of ambition and dysfunction. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think it, it is the single biggest problem um, with Arsenal at the moment. Yeah. And you know what? And I'll, I'll let you jump in here, Clive, before we say goodbye, but I'll say this. The great sports teams in the world have one thing in common throughout all their leadership, coach, executive, general manager, technical director, owner, whatever it is. They hate losing more than they love winning. They hate losing. You know, why are United a mess right now? I'm sure a big part of it is, is stupidity, but a big part of it is I don't think Woodward gives a shit because they're counting their money. They're so busy counting their money, they don't really care. Fergie cared. He hated losing more than he loved winning. Arsene Wenger hated losing more than he loved winning. He just got to the point where he couldn't do it anymore. Roman Abramovich hates losing more than he loves winning. It leads him to sack managers, but it also gets him titles in Champions Leagues and so on and so forth. Stan Kroenke does not care that we are losing. He does not care. And because he does not care, he will let the rot set in. And once the rot sets in, if you've ever tried to get you know termites out of a house or mold out of a house, once it's in there, it's a big fucking challenge trying to get rid of it. And that's why you have to react to losing. I know some people say, oh, you know, there's too much instant reaction. Yeah, but be careful what you wish for, so to speak, because you get on a losing streak. You're in the Europa League a season, you can recover. You're in the Europa League three, four seasons. Your entire pedigree, your entire perception as a club changes. Suddenly, instead of sixth on the Deloitte money list, you're 12th, and players aren't coming to you, and you're not in discussions to be part of a, a European Super League. So for me, the problem with Stan is because he doesn't care, he won't stop the rot. He won't step in to get rid of the people that are part of the problem, and he'll let those people run it. It's the substitute teacher. They let the class clown run the class. That, that is the problem, and that is Stan. And if he doesn't get involved, then these people that aren't effective will be able to rot the club from the inside out. Clive, I'll let you have the final word on it. Yeah, it was great stuff. And your point around um, not caring quickly enough and a lack of reaction is almost a measure of not caring. And I, I think that's really, really good. And I think it's something that's annoyed me for a long time about our, we're not reacting to our landscape around us and it it's really frustrating as a as a, you know particularly in london right now 
right? What Chelsea have done and what Spurs could do at the weekend, it's not it's not good for our, for Arsenal fans. It, it really isn't. And um, and I used to I used to talk about this a lot on the podcast when I first came on, and some of your friends just take the Mickey out of me. And I used to talk about the employer of choice. Remember that? Always about the employer of choice. I wanted us to be the employer of choice because I dreaded this moment. Dreaded this moment where we wouldn't be the place where people wanted to be. And and this is exactly what's happening. And until we get everything right within the club, including the owner, and have create those common goals, those common messages, we've seen little snippets, but I don't trust any of it. Until we get that right and create an ambiance around the club that says, I want to be there for the right reasons, rather than I want to be there because I want to buy my family a house in Dubai because they're going to pay me stupid money. Right? That's where we are at the moment. We need to change that. Rip, rip out the guts of the club. Clean it up. We're not going to get it from the top. We have to accept that, that we've given the crown jewels away to an idiot. Right? So we have to accept that until he changes, which I don't think he's going to. So, But within the structure of the football side of the club, maybe we can do something to develop something that the fans can connect to, understand, and get behind. Because at the moment, it's an, I know it's one day after a massive loss, which is the worst I felt to 2004 when Chelsea last beat us in Europe. It feels pretty empty. Yeah, well... That cheered me right up. <laughs> um, let's leave it there, unfortunately. <clears throat> hey, you know the good thing, though? All of us, all of us may not have to worry about this. And honestly, water off a duck's back. We may not have to worry about it becomes, because by Sunday, none of us may be football fans anymore. So there's always, always a silver lining. The fact that we have now put the future of our football fandom in the hands of Liverpool is quite sickening. Tim, uh I, I hope you will find a good fallout shelter to hide in over the weekend. Uh, he can be found on Twitter at Stilberto. Thanks, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. My pleasure. Yeah, maybe just stay in Turkey a little bit longer, see what happens at the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, Clive's on Twitter at Clive PFC. Thanks, Clive. Thank you very much. Been a scouser all your life, right? Um, all my life. All your life. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block calm, me on Twitter. Yankee. Calm down. Yeah, you can block <laughs> me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Please give us a five-star review. I, I do want you to know that we we appreciate it when you do that. And even though I joke around, say write nasty things about us, and, and you do, and that's great. Um, when you give us a review, it really means a lot to us. I, I think being able to be a part of this conversation as we all go through this and try to figure it out together means a lot. We try to engage a lot on social media where we can. And we really appreciate <clears throat> you feeding back and, and connecting with us and, and all of us sort of having this conversation and trying to figure it out. None of us have the answers. Obviously, um, but you know, maybe, maybe eventually, one of these days, we'll all be celebrating uh, something really, really special, and it can start with Liverpool getting the job done at the weekend. In any event, we'll have transfer stuff coming up um, next week, so you can look forward to that. And until then, we will talk to you after Liverpool ten Spurs nil.